So what we've been doing for the last um, few weeks is we've actually just given people, sorry, my name's Ian. For those of you who don't know me, you might be visiting, you can see I'm ready to go. Um, might not know me, I'm one of the pastors here and um, it's lovely if you are visiting us. It's great to have you with us. If you're from out of town, um, you might be missing home. Garth has an amazing home. Just rock up there on Sundays, he'll look after you. Um, Rog as well, um, just dishing out services. But we want you to feel at home. So please um, see us at the Visitor's Lounge, get to the involvement we really do want to make you feel at home. Um, what we've been doing over the last few weeks as we haven't been in a series, we've been giving people kind of free reign to share what they think God might be saying to us as a community in 2020. And we had Louise last week speaking to us about a lasting hope and how in Christ we have this amazing, incredible, lasting hope. And then the week before that, Rigby chatted to us about contentment and simplicity and how true contentment is found in a person, Jesus. And the week before that, we had Kyle speaking to us, if you can remember that far back, um, about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus, what it means to actually follow Jesus and do the things that Jesus calls us to. And tonight, when I was preparing and thinking and praying a bit about what, we, what I want to share, I got a lot. No, I'm joking. I didn't get a lot. But what I've got in a nutshell summarized was this idea of pleasing God. And I, this idea of pleasing God. And I want to speak to us tonight about what does it mean to please God and how do we please God? And as I was considering this little verse in Hebrews jumped into my mind, and I think at the center of this verse is this idea of pleasing God. And I find it quite interesting to think about pleasing God because so often what can happen is we, we tend to turn things around into pleasing me. And sometimes when we hear about Jesus, when we hear about our faith, when we hear about the offers of Christ, what can happen is we put those up next to every other offer that we have from society and culture and advertising. We go, yeah, at this point in time, that one seems to be the one that's gonna please me the most. And sometimes we're so used to it as consumers to spend our lives asking the question, what pleases me? That we sometimes forget to ask the question, what pleases others? And then there's this question of what pleases God? And so I wanna to talk to us tonight a little bit about pleasing God and what that looks like and how we do it. And I'm making the assumption that you want to please God, but we're gonna chat about that a bit later. But what I wanna do now, just before we read the verse, is I want to pray, but before we pray, what we're gonna do is I want you to think of cooking God a recipe with your life. So if you had all the ingredients with the different elements of your faith and your life and the things you do, the things you think, the things you feel, if you could pick three ingredients to put into a recipe that you would put before God to please Him, what would the three ingredients be? Would it be your good works? Would it be your prayers? What would it be? What would be the three ingredients of pleasing God? And I really want you to do this exercise. I really want you to pick three ingredients from everything you know about being a Christ follower and everything you know about your life. What top three things would you put into that dish that you'd serve to God to please Him? Okay, so I hope you've got three. Now I want you to rank them one, two, three. So most important, second important, third most important thing that you think would please God. And then I'm gonna pray and then we're gonna read a verse that tells us almost immediately what it is, what those ingredients should be. So I'm gonna pray, Father, I pray that as we look into this idea of pleasing you and what it means to please you as those who are your followers, those who've been rescued and redeemed by you, I pray you would speak to us. God, that we would encounter the living God, that you would pour out your spirit in fresh ways and that you would bring life to us. Father, that we would know you and enjoy you and and want to know you, know and enjoy you, Father, by pleasing you. God, would you, would you do something in us that is unique and special tonight as we encounter you freshly, the living God? 
In Jesus' name, amen. Now there's a verse in Hebrews 11 that I want to um, read from. Hebrews 11:6 is the one we're gonna focus on, but I'm just gonna read it in a bit of context. So we're gonna go from verse one to six. So read with me. Now faith is assurance of things hopeful, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what was seen was not made out of things that are invisible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So the context of Hebrews 11 is the author of Hebrews has been writing about Jesus and all the implications of who he is and what he's done. It's an amazing book that really dives down deep into the who Jesus really was and everything that he represented and what that means for our lives. And he's done this amazing job of convincing whoever reads Hebrews of the beauty and the wonder of this person, Jesus, and how important and magnificent and significant it is that he stepped into human history. And in chapter 11, what he's doing is he's kind of asking the question that he thinks his readers would be asking is, what about all the people before Jesus? What about all those faithful men of Israel before, men and women of Israel before Jesus? What about them? And he goes, well, you know what? The way that we encounter and please God is the same for them as it was for us. And he goes into chapter 11 and he unpacks how it is the same for them as it is for us in terms of pleasing God. And what he lands is in verse six, is he lands with this little phrase, and without faith, it is impossible to please God. So I know I asked you for three ingredients, but you can actually throw away your second two. And the only ingredient you need is faith. Faith is the only thing you need to put into that meal that you put before God to please Him is faith. This is the dividing line between God being pleased and not being pleased is faith. It is so simple, it is so clear. It can't be more emphatic. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. So for all those faithful men and women before God, if they had faith, they please God. And for us now, if we have faith, we please God. And so what happens is understanding what faith actually is becomes incredibly important. If you have any inclination of wanting to please God or desire to please God, then when I say to you that the, Hebrew, the author of Hebrews is saying to us that the only way to please God is with faith, then if you desire to please God, you should go, well, what is faith? I really want that. I wanna make sure I've got that in my life. I wanna make sure that's in my ingredients that I, that I have on offer to God is faith. And now I know that I've made an assumption that we wanna please God. I just wanna to talk to that quickly because to be honest, I don't think the average human being walks down the street with a deep inbuilt desire to please God. In fact, I think most people walk down the street going, I don't really think about God very often and I don't really mind what he thinks or feels or says or does. I think that's the general way that people feel about God. I don't think there's this inbuilt natural desire, oh God, I really wanna please you. Another way of thinking about that is the author in Hebrews speaks about drawing near. If you would draw near to God. 
So another way of thinking about pleasing God is a deep inbuilt desire to draw near to God. And I don't think that the average human walks down the street necessarily with a natural inclination to draw near to God or want or desire to draw near to God. Another way of thinking about this, I think I was hungry when I wrote this sermon because there are a lot of food analogies, is hunger. In the deepest part of your soul, what are you hungry for? What are you hungry for? Are you hungry to please God? Are you hungry for the things of God? Are you hungry for God Himself? Is that what your soul longs for? When your soul's feeling starts to rumble and it feels a bit hungry, what do you satisfy it with? What is that thing that you go to when you open the pantry door? What are you looking for? And so often I say the average human doesn't open that pantry door and go, "Mm, where's the can of God? And if you're not a Christ follower, It doesn't surprise me if you're not hungry for God. If you don't know Jesus and you haven't encountered Him, then it would be strange in some ways for you to have a hunger for God if you actively deny that He exists. But my prayer is that as I speak a little bit about Jesus and for some reason you found yourself in the meeting tonight, I really hope that you encounter the living God and you get a taste of Him and it would be something like eating chocolate for the first time. It would taste incredible. And you wouldn't be able to say no to coming back and tasting a bit more. And you wouldn't be able to say no to going on a journey of going, what and who is this person? And what is he really about? And why is there something so incredibly good about this experience of worshiping him and hearing about him? But if you're a Christ follower, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, I wanna ask you a question, how often Do you feel your soul hungry for God? How often do you feel yourself going, I wanna please God with my life. I wanna please God. Is it a a moment by moment thing? Is it a day by day thing? Is it a week by week thing? A month by month thing? A year by year thing? Or a never thing in your life? Because the reality is when we have encountered the awesome, free mercy and grace of God explode into our lives. One of the greatest evidences that that's taken place is that our hungers and our desires and our wants change. And we find rising up in us, it might start off small, a deep longing to please God and be with Him, to know Him and enjoy Him. We find ourselves reorientating our entire lives around the person of God in such a way that we long to know that He is pleased. We long to know that He is the one that we go to for satisfaction. Now, I know that there might be Christ followers in this room experiencing a bit of dryness and you would say, I don't know if I long for God and it's been a long season. I would say, don't settle for that. Don't settle for that. Get people around you who are experiencing the goodness of God and the sweetness of God and get them to pray with you and don't settle. Fight in that space. Press into God. Seek Him and let people fight alongside you and stand in the gap. Don't let dryness be an excuse to just drift from God. Move towards Him. But then for some of you in this community, my concern is that you've, you've tasted the starters, but you haven't tasted the main meal. 
That some of us, we come into this space and there are people who are happy, there are people who are singing, there are people who are going through hard times, but they're still full of joy. There's community that gets around you when you celebrate, there's community that gets around you when you're sad, there's community that meets together on a Sunday, so there's a place to go and feel like you belong, there's community that gets together in people's homes, and you go into those homes and it's all incredible and it's amazing, and you're caught up in that and you love that, but you still have absolutely no desire to please God. You're just enjoying all the fruits of Christian community and the work of God. You've been carried along and swept along by the starter of the meal, not the main meal. Because all that is good and all that is the byproduct of God. All that is because we have a living creator, Jesus himself at work in this community that when people step in here, and I get it all the time, when people who are far from God step into this community and really experience this community, they go, this is incredible. There's something unique and powerful here. And I always say to them, don't stop there. The reason this community is unique, incredible and beautiful is because of the one that we follow. He's unique, incredible and beautiful. And he's changing us and transforming us. And we're just like you in need of him. But don't stop at the community, push through the starter and get to the main meal, Jesus himself. And so my concern or my, out of it, I've been told multiple times that I am very intimidating. I don't know if you find that or not. If you knew me like one-on-one, I'm anything but intimidating. I'm actually like a giant marshmallow who's quite shy. I just get really passionate about this stuff. And that passion is birthed out of a deep love for Jesus, but also a deep love for the people in this community. And I don't want anybody to be swept up in all the goodness of what God is doing and not encounter God himself. I want everyone who walks through these doors to know the love, kindness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want you to know that for all eternity. So any intensity you see in me is just translated to love, even if it's difficult. Okay, so if we have a desire and a love to know God and we wanna please Him, then we need to know what faith is. We need to have definition around this word. I've heard faith described as believing God. I love it, I find it very helpful. I I find that phrase helpful. Faith is believing God, but I've also learned that you can believe things and they have no impact on your life. I can believe chocolate's bad. I told you, lots of food analogies. I can believe that chocolate's bad for me. I still eat it and I will probably eat it until I go be with Jesus. I can believe something, but it have no impact on my life. I've also heard faith described as trusting God, but I also learned that with your mouth, you can say you trust something, but with your actions in life, you can display that you actually trust something else. So we must not be satisfied with a vague, unclear understanding of faith or definition. We need this to be practical and real in our lives so that we can be certain that we are living in such a way that we're pleasing God. And the author of Hebrews in chapter 11 is massively trying to take faith, the idea of faith, the theology of faith, out of theology, out of concept, out of ideas, out of a way of thinking, and he's trying to bring it down into everyday life, something that he, we can do, see, and touch. Like, this is what faith is. He's living in faith. I'm living in faith. This is what we're doing. And that's the whole of Hebrews 11. He actually speaks about all these men and women of faith who exercised faith and lived by faith and did faith. And it's an incredible display of what faith actually is. And then he gives us this powerful little summary verse. And he says two things about faith that help bring definition to what faith is. The first thing he says is, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. 
That's him adding some definition to what it means to live by faith. You need to believe that God exists. And then the second thing he says, and that he rewards those who seek him. So now we're starting to see this author in Hebrews bringing some definition to what faith actually is. And I wanna look at that first one. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And we're gonna look at both of these things. And the first one is a bit longer than the second one. But I really want us to unpack this word faith and get to know what it means. And so he says this thing, he says, whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. And that seems so obvious. You can't move, you can't trust, you can't believe, you can't get towards something that doesn't exist. If God doesn't exist, then you can't move towards him. So obviously God exists. Obviously he's real. You have to believe that he's real and that he's someone that you can know and move towards. And obviously to live without faith is to deny that God exists. Surely that's simple. So those who believe, believe that God exists. And those who don't believe, deny that God exists. And it's that simple, but we have a problem. Problem is this, is that if you look poll after poll taken in this country, says if asked the question, people ask the question, do you believe God exists? They say yes. There are still more people who say yes to that question and no to that question. In fact, it's pretty much staying the same. Even though there is this sense that atheism is taking over the world, actually the data is starting to show that more people just say yes. Is there a God? Yes. I believe in God, yes. But then we have this culture that if you stand back and look at the culture, it does so much to deny the existence of God. So we find ourselves in this trouble of culture, a whole bunch of people saying, yes, I believe in God, but then the evidence of that belief not showing. Actually, it's the opposite. It's everybody's living as if God doesn't exist. And so what we realize is that believing that God exists is more than just a mere acknowledgement that He's alive or that He exists. There's something more to this. We really need to understand what does it mean to believe that God exists? Because acknowledgement isn't enough. And so you've got Paul, an apostle. In Acts 17, he arrives in Athens and Athens is full of people who are very religious. They serve almost every God. There's a plethora of gods available on offer and statues to them and gold and statues made of gold and silver. And it's just a place full of gods. And then they have the statue. It's kind of what I see sometimes in us and in myself is like a Hail Mary kind of insurance policy faith. Yeah, I trust that God exists. I'm gonna say He exists because if I say that God doesn't exist and I get that wrong, that's probably gonna end up bad for me. So I'm just gonna throw out God exists. And he walks into Athens and they're kind of doing the same. They've got all these statues and then they've got a statue to the unknown God. And it's just like throwaway hope, insurance policy. In case we've missed one of the gods, we're just gonna build a statue that says that. And that's an undefined, unclear, fuzzy understanding of what faith is and that God exists. And so Paul walks into Athens and he brings amazing clarity to what it means to believe that God exists. And there are three things that, at least three things that I can see Paul speaking about that you have to affirm, believe and live out of deep conviction of to truly believe that God exists, to truly say that you have faith in Him. So read with me the encounter that Paul has with these people in Athens. So Paul, standing in the midst of the, I've been struggling with that word all day, said, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. 
What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Very interesting situation. Paul walks in and goes, I see you're very religious. You have belief in a lot of gods and you've got this unknown God here. But what I wanna do now is I wanna bring definition to what it actually means to have faith in the true and living God. And he goes on to say this in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. To believe that God exists, the first thing that we need to affirm and live out of, a deep conviction of, is that God is creator. That God is creator. That everything that is exists because God created it. As the, Hebrew of authors is, um, as the author of Hebrews is unpacking in chapter 11, this idea of faith, he says this very similar thing to Paul in verse three. He says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are invisible. And it's massive implications for how we live our lives. If God is the creator, he created everything out of nothing, then what that makes us is creatures. We're creatures, we're not creators. We're not ultimate and final creators. Any creativity found in ourselves actually finds its source in other people's inspirations all the way back to God. And it finds its origin in God. We are creatures, he's created. I mean, we're created and he's uncreated. He is the creator. And that actually has very real implications for how we live. If we live as creatures, we don't live as if we are independent and are the captains of our own ship. You see, they're great. They're two big lies to believing that we're just creatures and he's the creator. And the one is autonomy. That we, we get to live autonomous from anything else in our lives. That we are independent, that we get to choose everything we want to do, how we do. We get to choose what we think. We get to choose what we feel. We get to choose what we do with our money, our gifts, our abilities, our bodies, our sexuality. To live as if we are the creators, to live as if all these things belong to me and they are mine and mine alone to decide what to do with. As if everything originated in and of yourself. Complete autonomy. But if God is creator, there is no such thing as complete autonomy for us as creatures. We are dependent and needy on God. The second big lie to understanding that God is creator and we are creatures is self-sufficiency. We don't need God. We don't need you. We can live and make sense of life and everything in our lives apart from you, God. And I see this in myself deeply. One of my greatest prides is when I feel like I'm self-sufficient and independent of any help. I also see it in Layla, who's not even two years old yet. Her two favorite words at the moment are self and mine. Self, mine. She walked out into a beach the other day and screamed, no mine, as she looked at other people. <laughs> she honestly believed the beach belonged to her. Mine, I wanna believe that I'm not weak, I'm not needy, I'm not dependent. Creatures are needy, creatures are dependent. Creatures need the one who made them and nurtures them and cares for them and sustains them. Which is why Paul says, don't forget that God gives you breath and life. Every single time we take a breath, it is a gift of God saying, you need me, 
you are dependent. And really does affect the way we live every second of our lives. Whether we see ourselves as creator or creature. Later the other day was again screaming at Laura, mine, mine, mine. Laura knocked down, looked at her, said, look in my eyes. She's not very good at that. So it was about 10 times, look in my eyes. And as she got her attention, she said, no, actually what that is, is mom and dad's because everything you have, mom and dad gave you. And everything that mom and dad have, God gave them. So actually, none of this is ours, and it's ours to steward towards what God wants to do. And then she just walked away saying, mine, 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 <laughs> mine. It really depends how we live. Yeah, altar call. Pray for her later. Okay, we are creatures, not creator. Verse 20, and there's something about knowing that that causes awe and wonder to rise up in us and feeds our souls to know that we are not the ultimate, but there is an ultimate one. And we long for that. The second thing that we need to affirm and believe to truly say that we believe God exists, let's keep reading. Verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far off from each one of us. In him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. So Paul carries on speaking to him, God, even your own poets will acknowledge that we are dependent creatures on God. But he's got this interesting line where he says that he's allotted our boundaries and our dwelling places and the periods in which we would live. And the second thing we need to affirm to truly have faith that God exists is that God is in control, that God is the king of the universe, that God is stewarding everything that he's created. He's intricately involved in everything that's going on. He knows the beginning from the end. God is in control. We are not ultimately in control. There are so many mysteries in life where we need to just trust. God, I don't know why you did that or how you did that or for what reason you did that, but I'm gonna stop trying to have control and I'm gonna let you have control. When we understand that God is the one in control and we actually live like he exists. When we actually say, God, you exist and you're in control, it changes the way we are. We go from frantic, fearful, sleepless people to rested, dependent. I don't need to know everything. I don't need to control everything. I can let go and I can trust the one who controls all things. And you can see people who live like that. They put their head on the pillow and they fall asleep. And when there's turmoil around them, they trust that it's there for a reason and God will take them through. The secure and rested people are those who live and exercise the reality that God exists and that he's in control. I think control is a massive one that we, we struggle to let go of. Yeah, I know God exists, but I must do this. I must fix this. But exercising faith in these moments is actually acknowledging that I'm not in control. Some of you know and some of you don't know that I had a pretty rough end to 2019. Spoken about it once or twice while I've been up here. 
it's probably a season in my life I'll talk about often and not forget very quickly. In, in October, my dad had a stroke and um, recovered miraculously from that, but that was stressful. In November, my brother died tragically, suddenly. Then on the 24th of December, my dad had another stroke. He's also recovered amazingly and is better than before. I don't know if he'd agree. Is he here? Um, <laughs> and then there was other stuff that happened and then I came back and the very first thing was to do was to lead a family through the loss of their mother who died of cancer. And then Garth recently lost his uncle to cancer. And so between October and now, I've felt like control doesn't exist. There's no such thing as controlling things. I've, I've learned a valuable lesson that I'm not entitled to anything more than what God's given me in this moment. I don't have control. And exercising in these faith is going, God, this is a really big, significant and important moment and I'm not gonna try and control it. I shared this at Ali's memorial, but when I, ID'd, I had to ID his body on the 8th of November and I walked into that room, it was a big and significant moment. I looked at my brother, I said, Jesus, I'm not in control, he's yours. And I trust you so much more than anybody else on this planet. I trust you more than anybody else in this universe. I don't have all the answers. I have so many unanswered questions. I have, there's so much mystery surrounding this and I'm a little bit dazed and confused right now, but you are in control and I trust you and it brought genuine rest and comfort and peace that is still with me today. We are not in control. We are creatures, but there is a gloriously kind and wonderful and merciful creator who is in control. And faith is actively releasing that control to him in everyday stuff, even when it feels too big. If it's too big for you, it's not too big for him. You should probably have let it go a long time ago. So that's number two. To genuinely believe that God exists is to believe that he's in control and we are not. Let's keep reading Paul and get the last one. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. I love that phrase, that sentence, that what he's saying there, it's beautiful. He's going, guys, let's stop creating gods in, out of gold and silver. Let's stop creating gods with fancy cars and houses and marriages and let's stop creating gods as if we can imagine God and dating relationships and all these things that he's created are good. Let's stop turning created things into gods because that's ridiculous. That's out of our imagination as if the creature can imagine the creator. He's saying, no, 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 no. We as humans are out of the imagination of the creator. He imagined us and made us and gave us breath and life. So stop turning created things into gods. And then he goes on to say, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And on this, he has given his assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
So the third thing I think Paul gives us in defining what it means to believe that God actually exists is that we can know him and he's our savior. We can know him and he's our savior. He's not a nebulous out there God where we throw out wishful things into the universe and hope without hope that there is someone out there listening. No, he is a person who stepped into human history in the name of Jesus and his name was Jesus and he walked with real people on real roads towards a real cross and he bled real blood and he died a real death and he was raised in victory and power on the third day. And so to believe that God exists is to believe that he has a name and he has definition. He is as defined as a person, Jesus. And he's done some incredible things and he's achieved incredible things, and he said some incredible things. And this is what excites me so much that we're going through Mark for the next little while. And I know that our tagline is good news at last, but what I've learned is that it's good news that lasts. That no matter what you're going through, no matter what you're experiencing, the person and the definition of Jesus is a true and lasting and abiding hope in the hardest of times. He is real and when you go to Him, you experience comfort and you experience peace. And where there is restlessness, even though it seems like everything should be restless, you go to Him and there's rest. So to believe that God exists. Now, before I go there, can I speak to Christ followers quickly? I fear sometimes that when I speak about the beauty of Jesus, who He is, and that He's a defined person that you can go and encounter, that it doesn't always land home because we don't actually exercise faith in the moments that we need to go towards Him the most. And one of those moments I've experienced is that for a bunch of Christ followers, when you sin, when you make a mistake, when you stuff up badly, and you do something that you know you really shouldn't have done and that you've hurt people and you've hurt God and you've offended God and you've done anything but please Him. In that moment, what I tend to see Christ followers do with the gospel is they go, what I need to do is I need to just get some distance between this moment. And once I've got some distance between this moment, what I'll do is I'll kind of edge a bit closer to God. And when I've done a few things that I think I've kind of got right and I've kind of made amends for that, then I'll get into the presence of God. And I'm like, no wonder there's no wonder in the gospel of what Jesus has done. Because the beauty about what we're talking about here and the beauty about what Paul is saying is that in the moment that you are most ashamed, the moment that you feel most unworthy, to exercise faith in that moment is to go, God, meet me now. I need you right now. I need your grace and your mercy and your kindness in this moment. What has happened here is I've hungered after and desired something that's not you. Would you change my desires? Would you change my hunger? I can't do that, but would you meet me with your grace? Would you cover me right now? Would you restore me? Would you make me practically in the depths of my heart feel forgiven? Would I in my mind know I'm forgiven? And would I in my emotions feel forgiven by you? It's that that empowers you to move forward because it's God who changes you. That's what faith looks like when it's exercised. When we believe that Jesus is who He said He is and did what He said He did. It affects every area of our life. So those are the three things. Don't worry, my second one is way shorter. He exists, means that He is the creator and we are creatures. He is in control and we don't have it. He can be found and He is our Savior, Jesus. And all of these things have real impact in our lives 
and there is a call to exercise faith in these things. And then the author of Hebrews says one more phrase as he brings definition to what it means to have faith. He says this in verse six, and that he, speaking of God, rewards those who seek him. Such a powerful phrase. That phrase captures the promises of God, but it also captures the action of God. We have to reject anything that anybody would call faith that leaves you completely and utterly unchanged here and now. Faith is believing that God rewards those who seek Him. It means that as you believe in the promises of God, you can believe that God will answer the promises of God. It doesn't just mean that God is good. It means that God will be good towards you. It doesn't just mean that God will promise things to you. It means that He will fulfill His promises. We have to believe in a God who is alive and exists and is a powerfully at work in this community and in your lives. And so often what we can do is, I know all the theology about God's promises, but we are absolutely satisfied when none of them are fulfilled in our lives. Well, we know of God's goodness, but we're satisfied when we don't experience any of God's goodness. Or we know that God says, I will draw near to those who draw near to me, but we are satisfied when God feels distant from us. That's believing God, but not believing that He exists and that He would draw near to you if you draw near to Him. And so the author of Hebrews is going, no, there is a reality to our faith that believes that God exists in such a way that we trust that God's gonna move towards us, act and actually transform our lives and our being. That there is a transforming power in God that as we move towards Him, He's gonna change us. And there's so much I could say and there's so many disclaimers I could make, but I don't wanna make them. I wanna call us to faith. I want us to call us to pleasing God. I want us to call us Bosch PM in 2020 to live as if God exists and trust God to do great things in our lives. I'm so sick and tired of hearing, I mean, I'll walk a long journey with you if you're stuck in pornography. But I'm so tired of feeling as if that thing has the final say over the men and women in this community. It doesn't. I know so many people who are walking free because they are exercising faith in the reality that God exists and rewards those who seek Him. And there's so many other things I could mention. This simply means that there is real transforming power in knowing, following, and pursuing God. I wanna give us three examples and then we're done. Hebrews 11.4, the author's trying to make this real to us. He says, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gift. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So what we have here is we have Cain and Abel. You don't need to know the fullness of the story, but basically in Genesis, two brothers go to God and to the altar and they bring the first fruits of an offering of everything that they've produced. And what happens in that moment is as they bring it to the offering, God rejects Cain's offering and he accepts Abel's offering. Both of them living as if they are creatures going, God, everything I have isn't mine. So we bring a portion of it. In fact, the first portion of it to you in offering. But God looks down and he sees Cain's heart and there's something in there. We don't know fully what it is, but there's something in there and he goes, no. 
You're not pleasing. That offering's not pleasing. And maybe Cain's going, hey, God, I'm bringing you this offering because I'm hoping you'll do this or you'll achieve that in my life or you'll do this thing for me instead of a pure God. I wanna please you with this. And Cain comes, I wanna please God with my offering. And God looks at their two hearts and he says, I accept, you. I, I am pleased by, Cain, by Abel's offering. See, you can do the right thing with the wrong heart. You can do the right thing without faith and it is unpleasing to God. Then we read in Hebrews 11:5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. This is one of those weird ones in the Bible. There's like genealogies. It's a book in the Old Testament. It's just genealogies. This person was birthed off to this person and lived for this many years and this person. And then it kind of pauses at Enoch and goes a bit further and says, he walked with God. God was pleased with him, something like that. I'm paraphrasing here. And then it goes and he was taken up. And you're like, what? Taken up where? Like, I don't wanna walk with God pleasing to him if I'm gonna be taken up. I want to know where I'm taken up to. And the author in Hebrews goes, he did not see death. This amazing journey of a man who was so hungry to please God, so hungry to walk with God, so hungry for the things of God, that God's gift to him, God's reward for his earnest seeking was you won't experience death. I'm just gonna pluck you out of this world and bring you home. It's incredible. But you know what? If I'm honest, if God had to do that to me and some of us in this room, I think we'd be like, no, 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 hold on, I've got a bucket list. I still wanna get married. Uh, yeah, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes with marriage that I wanna experience. There's this guy down the road, he's just starting to send me WhatsApps. Like, why now, God, why now? It's like the last thing he wants is to be an Enoch. But you see, with Enoch, he had a genuine belief that the things of God were better. And what that does in my heart is it reveals to me, I'm in the shallow end of understanding how good it is to be with God. And that if he had to take me now, it would be a gift. It would be a gift. Last one. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Moses in a moment, a life transforming moment, so many of you leave varsity or you're arriving at varsity and you're trying to decide what you're gonna do. And it's this moment, a few times in your life, you have life transforming moments. And here we have a moment where Moses brings his faith to a life transforming moment. And before him in a moment is the pleasures and riches of Egypt, the comforts of Egypt for the rest of his life, or to go and endure a desert with the people of God. And to exercise faith in that moment is to go, God, I believe that you exist and that you are better. And he rejects the riches of Pharaoh and he goes off and he endures a desert, knowing that on the other side he's with God. Can you see how practical that is? God, I'm gonna make a life transforming decision, not on what is pleasing to me, but on what is pleasing to you because I believe you are better. And it might mean a desert rather than the comforts of Egypt. Oh, I actually have one more. Control, (laughs) sorry, control. Hebrews 11.32, and what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David, and Samuel, and the prophets. And he lists these names, and I just wanna talk quickly about Gideon, and then we're done. 
Ben can join me, in fact, up here. Gideon, the story of Gideon, again, we could unpack so much out of it, but simply it is this Israel, the nation of Israel has been oppressed by the Philistines and Gideon is this feared, fearful, fearful person hiding in a cave and God comes to him and says, Gideon, I'm gonna use you to liberate my people. And what happens with Gideon is then he wrestles with God and God shows him that he exists and that he's real and that he really has called him and Gideon then starts to get some courage. And then he starts to build an army and he builds a fairly substantial army and then God halves the army and then he halves it again and he cuts it down to about 300 men against the Philist- this huge Philistine army and God says to Gideon, Gideon, I'm doing this because I don't want the army to get the glory. I want there to be no doubt that the God of Gideon is a living God who exists and that he won the battle today. That's letting go of control. God, this really matters. I'm standing on a hill with 300 men. We're gonna die tonight if you don't rock up. If you don't show up, we're dead. I've been so challenged as I've prepped and thought and processed and prayed some prayers around, Ian, where in your life is it evident that it wasn't you but God? Where is it in your life that if God doesn't rock up, you're gonna look ridiculous or fail colossally? In your life, this is my question to us, in your life, does God need to exist or is it fine without Him? In your life, does God need to exist? Or is it fine without him? And I think faith and believing that God exists means that we step out into places, situations that take courage that we don't have, that take resources that we don't have, that take strength that we don't have, and we trust in the God who does. And when people say, how did that happen? You go, only by the grace of God. That's faith. And that's what it means to please God. Let's stand, I'm gonna pray. It really is two big questions. Do you have any desire to please God? If no, ask Him to change your desires. In a simple prayer, God changed my desires. If yes, then God would call you to a life of faith where you believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Let's be a community full of faith that God needs to exist amongst us. Father, I pray that this wouldn't just be words spoken, but God, that You by Your Spirit would do something powerful and unique in us as individuals in a community. God, would You drive away any fear that a message like this could bring? And would You call us towards You? Would You help us to see Your bigness we help you, would you help us to see that you're in control? Would you help us to wonder again at the death and resurrection of our Saviour, Jesus? Father, fill us with courage, fill us with your Spirit. And God, I pray that there would be so many stories this week of people who encountered you freshly tonight in worship and through your Word, who live by faith, who desire to please you, and who stepped out and said, God, you're alive. And so I move in courage. God, do something in us, I pray, amen.